Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. People think of trauma as one big thing that happens to them, like they're held up at gunpoint. But the reality is we accumulate tiny little traumatic events throughout life. And those events contribute to how we respond to things today on a day-to-day basis. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to uplevel your life, health, and happiness. Your host, integrative dietitian nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health-conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive, and skin issues at lessstressnutrition.com. Now, on to the show. At every single stage of my life, I can now look back and identify when stress was really rising to the top. As an Enneagram 3, I have a strong sense of needing to prove myself. And that stress of trying to prove yourself created a lot of gut issues, skin condition, and just not feeling like I had any energy to do anything at different points. Last week, I asked on social media how many people wake up feeling unrested and a staggering 72% told me that they don't wake up feeling rested. Do you want to know what you need to wake up feeling rested, to wake up like you have sustainable energy throughout the day? Getting more sleep is part of the picture, but getting better sleep and fixing the deficiencies that we've accidentally created in ourselves from stress, leaving us dependent on coffee and other things kind of through the afternoon. Fixing those deficiencies is how you fix your energy, how you wake up feeling rested again, how you have sustainable energy. My friend, you need some major freaking nutrient repletion if you don't want to be a slave to your hormones and to coffee, which is why I really felt pulled and called to share my adrenal protocols from my one-on-one client program given to you in four short weeks, a very live action workshop called the Resilience Reset. And this is the last call. In this four-week live workshop that will have replays posted right after, we're going to cover the best diet for your adrenals, which are also known as your stress hormones, and how you should eat for best mood and energy. We're going to cover how you help your adrenals run on all cylinders during stressful seasons of life instead of just fading into fatigue and apathy. We're going to cover how to evaluate your stress hormone levels with or without testing and get supplement protocols to implement for your current needs or to tuck in your back pocket for when things get crazy. And we're also going to cover what's going on with all your hormones from sex drive to heavy periods to no periods to hot flashes. This is really for savvy women that want to take care of their stress hormones before they get burned out. I really admire you people. (laughs) Tired moms and high performance women that really want to wake up with energy again and health professionals that simply want to swipe my protocols and assessments for every type of adrenal situation. We start this week. So if you want to jump in and it's not too late, just go to kristabigler.com forward slash links. All right. Today on The Less Stress Life, we have Dr. Jennifer Love. She's board certified in psychiatry, addiction psychiatry, and addiction medicine. She's the diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology and the American Board of Addiction Medicine. She attended medical school at Loma Linda University School of Medicine and completed her internship residency and subspecialty fellowship training at the University of Hawaii good times. She served as chief resident and as clinical faculty at the University of Hawaii Department of Psychiatry before returning to California, where she is currently in group practice with the acclaimed Amen Clinics. Welcome, Dr. Love. Thank you for having me. 
Yeah. So I'm excited. And I was chatting with you off air. You have a great, relevant, wonderful topic. But when we think about the amen clinics, if anyone knows anything about them, I stereotype them in my brain as, oh yeah, the people who do the brain scans for different things. And I've had a friend or two go there for brain scans. And so I was thinking about you being specialist in addiction and psychiatry. And by the way, I don't want to follow you around for the day. That sounds difficult, honestly. Uh, It sounds rewarding and challenging. And I know the book, you know, books always go through a framework and I know you'd have to almost have a framework and plan there. But I would love to talk to you about, and I don't know if this is something you look at. I know you do the brain scans there. And I have someone in my family that was affected by who's estranged and had an addiction because of that. And we always wonder, you know, it seems like when someone gets addicted to drugs, the brain changes and we're stuck in a certain place. Like what does an addiction brain look like? And then we'll go to chronic stress, which is our crisis in that. But I'm just curious mm-hmm. with you being the expert in addiction, what does an addiction, what does an addicted brain look like compared to a normal brain? So, well, and I always say healthy because I don't think there is normal, Okay, <laughs> but right. healthy brains, right. what a brain looks like can vary based on the person's genetics environment and past experiences. So some people are who have substance use disorders are very impulsive and may have low functioning of the frontal lobe. Some people may be more compulsive, meaning they don't have an off switch. So they're less impulsive, but once they start doing something, they just keep going and going and going. And oftentimes that's associated with the part of the brain called the anterior cingulate, which is also the same part of the brain that we see overactive when someone has OCD. You know, they have the thought of this is dirty, I have to wash my hands over and over again, or in PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome, when the brain replays the same traumas over and over again. So some people are more impulsive, some are more compulsive, some are a mix of both. Some people have anxiety that's driving the substance use. They're more likely to use more sedating substances, alcohol, cannabis, opiates, you know, heroin. And some people who typically are less anxious, will try to use the stimulants and everything to kind of wake up a sluggish brain. Over time, we do start seeing kind of a toxic appearance on the brain, regardless of what the substance is using. And what all the different substances have in common, as well as behavioral addictions, is that these behaviors and substances all activate something called the dopamine reward system in the brain. And so that rush that someone gets, whether it's cannabis, cocaine, eating an entire chocolate cake in a pizza, whatever that is, watching porn, that all causes a release of dopamine. And that's the rush that we like. And over time, that diminishes because the brain can't keep up. It's not used to dumping these amounts of dopamine. And so this is one of the terms you hear is chasing the dragon. They have an initial high that's so magical and they keep using trying to get that. But the more they use, the farther away they get from that. So there's a lot that addictions have in common. Individual humans have different brains. Yeah, for sure. So you make me think when you say all substances create this, I don't know, did you say toxic look in the brain? Is that what you said? Yeah, we can see kind of a toxic appearance on SPECT imaging where there's decreased blood flow in kind of patchy areas on the surface of the brain, which is the thinking part of the brain. It's the cortex. And if someone's on opiates or if, you know, they've had maybe mold exposure or, you know, any kind of toxins, anesthesia recently, you can see when you look at a scan that the surface of the brain looks really lumpy and bumpy. It's not smooth and beautiful like a healthy brain Mm. should be. So any toxic substances can build up and create this. And so my next thought was coffee and caffeine. Like if someone drank a pot of coffee every day, do you think you would see a difference in their brain scan? So it's interesting. When we have people scan, we ask them not to have caffeine that day because it affects what you see. It's a functional scan. Our bodies are really good at finding balance. And so we tend to get used to the things that we do. So I have a cup of coffee 
daily, not a 40 ounce cup of coffee. I have one little mug of coffee a day. And so my body's used to that. It's not going to dehydrate me. If I suddenly drank a pot and a half of coffee, one, I'd be bouncing off the walls. I'd have a tremor. I would feel anxious because I know myself. But that's, I would have a diuretic effect and all the other caffeine effects because I'm not used to it. And so if someone takes caffeine right before a scan, it'll change what we see. But in terms of how we physiologically respond to caffeine depends upon how frequently we use it. Got it. I'm just thinking about all of my brain questions all of a sudden before we get into crisis and how that affects things. And since, <laughs> It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. You just lit up tons of things in my brain because I was doing some neuroinflammation study last year and it was intense. Like I feel like I spent a lot of time talking about the gut and I don't know all the regions of the brain. And I had some people where they had concussions. And so in a very, very, very oversimplified version, the concussion would create a downstream effect on the immune system, like sending alert, essentially. So I'm kind of curious what the brain looks Mm -hmm. like because a concussion is a type of crisis. We'll talk about other crises in a moment. But what does the brain look like in concussion or injury like that? So fascinating question. A colleague of mine just wrote a book called Concussion Rescue and literally wrote the book on this. We treat head injury all the time. This is an area in medicine where we've just not had much to offer for years and years. It's like, are you conscious? Is there an acute bleed? If not, okay, go home and rest. We've been horrible at diagnosing and understanding the impact. And I think it was really with in the past few years, what's been going on with our NFL players Mm -hmm. And the NHL as well. And we're starting to learn that it's not necessarily having one big head injury, but there can be an accumulation of smaller head injuries that can cause just as many or more problems. So it's not necessarily losing consciousness that's critical. It's not necessarily even hitting your head. So if you have a whiplash injury that's significant enough, your brain can get injured inside of the skull. The carrying case itself is pretty sharp. Don't ask me why I'm not responsible for that. So people will tell me, I look at a scan and I go, wow, you have this pattern that seems pretty consistent with head injury. Have you ever hit your head? And I remember having one guy sitting across from me swearing up and down, north and south. I have never hit my head. I've never had a head injury. And I'm like, are you sure? Are you sure? And I look over and I said, is that a motorcycle helmet? He's like, yeah. You ever crash your bike? Oh yeah. I was riding. I was going like 60 and I flew off the handlebars and skidded. And I'm like, hello. But I didn't hit my head. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you went from 60 miles an hour to zero over what? Jumping a hundred feet or something? Like, how are you not injuring your brain. So a lot of times people don't realize the little things that they're doing that can accumulate and cause the head injury. What we see on a scan depends on where they hit it. Some more minor injuries you may have just at the spot of impact, but remembering that the brains are like tofu in consistency and sit inside of the skull that's sharp in just a little bit of fluid. If you, let's say someone gets hit in the front of the head with a beer bottle, I'm an addiction specialist, so it's not uncommon for my patients. It happens. (laughs) So that brain is going to jiggle back and forth. And so I also need to look for injury in the back around the temporal lobes because they sit in the skull right between these two bony ridges. So they're really susceptible to injury. And the thing to keep in mind is the brain is command central for the whole body. It runs like our hormone control comes from the brain. I mean, the brain does everything. So if someone injures, let's say the pituitary gland, they can develop problems with their thyroid. They can develop problems with blood sugar and they can develop hormone changes, whether it's low testosterone in men or cycle regulations for women. And even the stress response can be affected. The immune system can be affected. 
So when I see someone who's had a head injury and then they have these physical symptoms in all these different areas, I'm thinking, okay, we've got to think about your pituitary gland and whether or not that's been injured because that itself sits around a lot of really delicate bones as well. Is it easy to injure your pituitary gland? I was thinking it was kind of buried in there. Yeah, it's buried, you know, and it's hard to say why some impacts affect people more than others. Like, again, this is an area where in medicine, we don't know that much. Like, are there people who are more vulnerable? Like if two different individuals have the same exact impact, what would affect the outcome? I mean, I think, okay, well, if they've had a previous injury, that will affect long-term outcome. If there's been substance use, depending upon how heavy that is, that can affect the outcome in terms, you know, because it's another risk factor in terms of memory problems and other things. So we have these individual factors that go in. But man, when you go in the ER, all they can do is just ask if you're conscious and do a CT scan and see if you're bleeding. That's about it. (laughs) We haven't gotten very far in terms of concussion medicine in the medical field. When we look at spec imaging, which, you know, is very controversial, we can see patterns that we would typically see in brain injury. And we're really big on getting people on omegas, decreasing inflammation, getting the right nutrition that the brain needs to heal and other things. Well, you're speaking my language. So this makes me think a little bit about one more thing on injury. In general, it's going to depend where they're hit because different regions of the brain control different things. So they may have different symptoms, mm-hmm. as you said. Could you still have an outward? I think about someone I know who fell on a hoverboard and says, I still have a spot there. Is that normal to still have a spot? Like after two years later to have almost, I mean, I guess, I don't know if I would call it inflammation at that point. Like it's just like, a, it's almost like scar tissue maybe, right? I don't know. Yeah. Well, on that, you know, the brain's inside the skull and then mm-hmm. outside the skull, you have this layer of muscles and tissue and all that under the skin. And so when you think about if you have an injury, sometimes you can get these lumps and bumps that stick around, you know, babies whose skulls haven't formed, you know, are at much higher risk because the brain's not completely protected. But it's possible to have bumps and knobs. I have no idea what it is. It's probably just something between the skin and the surface of the skull that's there, some scar tissue or something that's sitting around. I never get to pick a a brain doctor's brain. So this is fun. Uh, (laughs) And we'll get to crisis here in a second. But I was just thinking about naturally how our brain would try to protect us. Like any area of the body, if something happens to, if we stub a toe, inflammation is going to go to this area and it's going to try to protect us. In the same way, our brain could have inflammation and the side effects could be much more undesirable than a stubbed toe, right? Because if the brain is literally doing everything, it could be pretty ugly. So one... Are there things that you can say, and I always say, you know, inflammation is a mechanism our brain is trying to do to protect us, but if it's chronic, right? So if we continue to add addictive substances, right, we're creating continued long-term inflammation. So we're trying to backtrack from that. Like one, how does our brain try to protect us? And two, how does our brain heal and regenerate? And then we'll get into crises. Like, you know, I know that's a really big top. I know that was a really big. I was just going to say, is this a three hour podcast? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, inflammation, I mean, it's a really interesting topic. You know, there's not a lot about it in medical school. And we are starting to see that it plays a huge role in dementia. We are rethinking what dementia is. And so we can rethink how we're going to treat this in the coming generations, but there's an inflammatory response there. So we know that inflammation can be protective, but it likely you hit a point of diminishing returns. It's like when you're an overthinker, like I'm guilty of that, right? You can think about a problem over and over and over again. And then you hit a point where if you just keep thinking about it, you're not getting anywhere. Like it's like backing your car in and out of the driveway, back and forth, back and forth. You're not making progress. And so inflammation in the body may serve a purpose temporarily. If you injure yourself, you need to get all the nutrients and blood cells and everything to that injury to aid in healing. But when you have generalized inflammation, like you can see when you have an autoimmune illness or someone's on a, you know, eating a lot of foods that they may be allergic to, that's when you can start well, basically just feeling like crap all the time. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Not a clinical term, by the way. Yeah. No, yeah. If your if the rest of your body is not in good shape, then it's hard for you to nourish your brain and give it what it needs. Just like any injured area, right? Improve yeah. nutritive blood flow. Okay. So I was talking about concussion, which is a type of crisis. It's going to bring us in to mm-hmm. why did an addiction specialist write a book about crisis before 2020 hit? What inspired a book about when crisis strikes? What was going on in work where you thought, you know what, we need to write a book about this? So initially, I've been wanting to write a book for a really long time. I love writing and it's something I've had on my mind. And the first thing I had to do every year, I pick a word of the year. And one year I picked courage. And so I literally emailed a literary agent and said, hi, my name's Jennifer. I have an idea. If you like it, let me know. If you don't like it, give me 10 minutes of your time and I'll convince you. So out of character, but I was really trying to like live up to my word of the year. And we met and we spoke and he signed me and like that started the process. And it was really, it was just remarkable. I started thinking about life. And the next year, my word of the year was really, it was center. And I was thinking about my life. I'm kind of mid-career, kind of middle age, you know, depending upon how you look at it. I mean, I'm 29, but you know, just kidding. (laughs) But you start thinking about things in life. Like, you know, I don't know how to not give you my snorkel analogy. I think of life like snorkeling. It's embarrassing to say, but you're down in the water looking around and we just get caught up with all the shiny things and there's fish and stay away from the sharks and is there going to be a starfish and all that? But every once in a while, you have to look up and see where you are in relationship to the shore because you drift when you're snorkeling. And so sometimes in life, you need to look up and then say, am I in the area I want to be in? Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have to move to a new area and then you can start snorkeling again. I love it. It's so good. Yeah. It's so hey, don't I be wanna, don't be embarrassed that you reduce Oprah. life that you've been re- you reduce life to snorkeling. It does it does really show your California side too. Yeah. Well I lived in Hawaii five years. So okay. when I in my own life was evaluating you know, you think of, well, gosh, all these people I know are talking about switching careers or burnout. Lawyers I know are like, I want to be an architect. And, you know, doctors are like, I want to go build houses. Like everyone kind of starts thinking about what else. And I was like, okay, well, that's one big thing. That's a crisis for some people. It's a crisis for me. I think if you look up from snorkeling regularly and reevaluate where you are on a regular basis, you're less likely to have one big Mm -hmm. crisis for your life. However, as we get older, our parents get older, they start having health problems. We start getting health problems. You know, my friends start getting breast cancer and other things. I had to have a cancer-related surgery. You know, people get divorced or they have financial problems and have to declare bankruptcy. Like we've been adulting for a while now. And, you know, it's some of my friends have kids with special needs. And like all of this, I started thinking really lends itself to crisis. And the longer the crisis goes on, the lower the quality of life you have on a day-to-day basis. And so we started thinking about how, you know, with all the various crises we see on a day-to-day basis, how do we come up with a system that can help people solve this when they don't have access to us. And so at this point, I decided I wanted to write a book with my co-author, Dr. Chiltura Hovik, who's a clinical neuropsychologist in Norway. So we have slightly different backgrounds. He does different work than I do as a clinical neuropsychologist, and he has fabulous sports analogies like golf and ski jumping and stuff that like, I will never give you a golf analogy. I can promise you that. (laughs) So we decided what would happen if we sat down together and came up with kind of a program for people. And it's complicated, obviously. You can't just wake up one day and say, hey, let's come up with five steps. And we didn't even know how many there would be. We just sat down and started saying, what's the process we go through? And then how do we simplify this so people can do this, but not make it too simple because it has to be effective. And we wanted it to be that there were people who could just buy one book and do the work. Now, not everyone who buys the book will be able to do the work because some of us have a lot of trauma 
And the book doesn't heal trauma. It helps us deal with our responses to the crises in life. You know, the book isn't going to take away the trauma. It's not going to take away the divorce. It's not going to kill off your ex for you and take away all your problems. It's that guide that helps us through all that. And so we spent months figuring out what that process would look like. And then he's the one who kind of came up with the idea that these steps were like kind of like the hand and each step is one of the fingers of the hand. And we were able to kind of you know, put it in an order so people could feel they could have something literally that they could grasp onto. It was a brilliant idea. I just told him there is no way in hell we are calling this a hand model because (laughs) I will not have my, I'm like, he kept calling it that. I'm like, no, 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 no. Norwegian is different than English. It's different than English. Like, please don't have five steps, five steps. (laughs) I love it. So basically you're in your work, you're seeing all these people going through essentially midlife crises because they're not looking up from snorkeling. And you think, how do we help people handle this? Like this is a big legacy really that you've embarked on, right? Like this is legacy work. I I feel like. I hope it is. We had this sense, and it sounds creepy to say, but we almost felt like this was our child. <laughs> like this is our baby. It is. I hope this is the beginning of a new life work for me because I feel like I have so much I want to communicate about various specific types. I, I treat so much trauma I'm like a magnet for Mm -hmm. it. And people think of trauma as one big thing that happens to them, like they're held up at gunpoint. But the reality is, we accumulate tiny little traumatic events throughout life. And those events contribute to how we respond to things today on a day-to-day basis. And so that has to be brought in to these five steps for what we're going through today. I wrote down a question. Does everyone have trauma? And I want you to answer it. But even just today in my interviews I did today, we talked about trauma multiple times. It seems that it continues to rise. I've been hearing from other people, hey, you know, there's so much trauma under age seven that people don't talk about. I had a client and friend tell me she was doing trauma work with someone and basically uncovered that falling in kindergarten, crossing the street she felt left behind, like she was accidentally manifesting things from it. So I guess the question is, does everyone have trauma? And how do you go about recognizing that? Because everyone's like, I don't have trauma. And the earlier interview said, "Uh, don't gloss over that, my friends. Everyone has some trauma. So and he, he said, in my program, we just assume everyone has it and we work on things around it. Yeah. So when the powers that be came up with the DSM-5, you know, the Mm -hmm. diagnostic manual we use in psychiatry, you know, because there's a lot of argument about what constitutes trauma. And so they insisted on keeping the definition like near death experience or the fear that your life is in danger or your safety or well-being. They kept it at these big events. The argument being if we had smaller events, everyone would have PTSD. So this is why I don't like the actual DSM diagnosis when they're treating a patient is less important to me than me having a really good detailed understanding of who this human is. That's sitting across from me. I had a traumatic event as a child watching Bambi, like completely traumatized because my parents were divorcing. My neighbor took me with her kids to go see Bambi. My dad left. So I'm a kid and all kids know is adults are in charge, right? And they expect adults to provide a sense of structure and order for the environment that their little brains can't do. So I had this message, my dad took off. So I'm already like subconsciously, because kids don't have higher order thinking like you and I do today. I'm like, wait, that guy's wired to take care of me. My person left. I have two people in the world. One of my people just left. So already that like five-year-old brain was already on alert that something was wrong. My neighbor takes me to see Bambi. And what happens in the first five minutes of the movie? Bambi's mom is killed. And I lost it. I started sobbing uncontrollably. And I remember after the movie, it was a sunny day. We're walking out to the car and poor Mrs. Netherland was like, Jenny, she's like, it's just a cartoon. It's just a movie. It's a Disney movie. She just couldn't understand it at all. And I remember going, I didn't know how to explain to her why throughout the whole movie and even going out to the car, I was still sobbing. 
it was like this introduction to grief. It was this message I didn't understand that at any moment, everything you have could be totally taken away from you. It was like losing in my mind. It was the first time I ever thought, gosh, I could lose my mom. And so I never carried that around as a trauma my whole life until later in life when I had an event, I wouldn't necessarily call it a trauma, but I had an event that had a similar theme and I had this overreaction. One of my favorite sayings in life is if it's hysterical, it's historical. Mm. So if I'm responding to something that is way out of proportion for what's actually going on, then it isn't all about this moment. It's about something else. So I discovered Bambi when I was digging around with a different life crisis. So all of these things, we never know what it is that will come back to us later in life. Yeah, no kidding. I was thinking through the process of how you uncover that, right? Because we'd have to really, you have to have a lot of white space or ability to just like dig up things. And I often wonder if we, if we thought about our early memories, because we only remember certain things, right? From being five. Are all of those relevant? You know, that's a thing to sit and ask ourselves. I don't know the answer to that. Just I'm being... Uh, Well, it's interesting too, not only is it relevant, but we know that our memories change over time as we replay them. And so we can create new versions of what actually happened. Mm -hmm. Um, So not all memories are really reliable. And there's a lot of discussion on that in the world of psychology too. Yeah, totally. Memory is not reliable. (laughs) Lots to say on that. Okay. So the book is When Crisis Strikes. So my question is, and we're talking about trauma. How does crisis and trauma differ from chronic stress impact on the brain? Does it recognize it? Does it look the same? Does it, I mean, how does, I mean, really this can be two parts. How does chronic stress change physiologically your brain, et cetera? And is it different than crisis and trauma? Because I think about that as a little bit acute and we're talking about chronic. So do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And there's medically, we don't have definitions for this. The terms are pretty vague. And people describe them differently. Like if you ask five of your listeners to write you and define a crisis or define chronic stress, you're going to get a different answer probably from each person. It's kind of like in medicine when someone comes to you and they say they're dizzy, like that's not a thing. It's like, okay, do you have vertigo? Do you feel lightheaded? Is it when you stand? Do you feel the room is spinning? Are you nauseous? Like, People, when you question them, use the word dizziness for anything random you can think of. And so crisis and stress and chronic stress and all that, people really define individually. I think of it as, is this thing that's here disrupting your life, affecting your quality of life, and how much so? So sometimes we have an event that for some would be a crisis and for some would not. Okay, so some people divorce and they're like, yes, I get to go on, what is it, tender, bumble, whatever. They're happy. They move on. Other people go through divorce and they're just not themselves. They become very depressed and may take years to recover. So it's not the event itself that's important. It's the meaning of the event to us in the context of our lives. So actually, that's part of the first step of figuring out your problem is, you know, getting a grip on the problem. That's the thumb, get a grip. And it's Hmm. looking at, you know, it's naming the problem. So what is the thing? What is the meaning of that thing to me? And what is the context in my life in which it's occurring? And so in 2020 and added, you know, a layer of context that's beyond what any of us could handle crisis or not. So for, you know, most of the things we address in the book aren't solved in a day. They stay with us. A cancer surgery stays with us for a long time, even after we heal. And then these things start piling up and relationship problems and all these things start piling up. So we can have multiple chronic stressors at the same time. And a crisis like losing your job in a pandemic on top of all of that. So I think that probably my publisher wanted to put as many keywords on the cover as possible so people could relate to that. But I think stress is something we all relate to. And it's very unusual that stress is short-lived. 
I agree. Well, that's a good next place to go because I will say high performers don't even necessarily resonate with the word stress. Sometimes you have to be careful about the verbiage and the words, right? You're going to be kind of far gone before you resonate with that concern. So I think the thought is it's always good to say, well, what are some potential surprising symptoms or some of the warning signs that we've had stress going on for a while? I'm really into like this heading toward burnout discussion right now. I mean, what are some symptoms of even short-term stress or long-term stress, chronic stress that you might not realize is a thing, or you might just be cruising along on autopilot and ignoring? So we see a variation, and this is why there isn't a medical diagnosis of chronic stress, because there's not one syndrome. Some people will start having disrupted sleep, either a problem falling asleep or staying asleep or waking up really early and not being able to go back to sleep. Other people will start having sugar cravings, fatigue during the day, energy crashes. Muscle tension is particularly common because a part of the brain that has to do with stress and anxiety, the basal ganglia, we have two, and they are also part of the movement center of the brain. And so this direct connection with the musculoskeletal system and stress. So a lot of times when people who are high performers are high exercisers and they get an injury, they don't know they're stressed until they have to stop working out because their bodies all of a sudden, they're not getting rid of that stress like they used to. They lost their coping strategy. Some people will develop strange allergies, not like official allergies where you're going to get like IgE mediated, go into anaphylaxis, but you're going to start getting chronic cough and post-nasal drip and these weird symptoms. Yeah, with foods that you've probably been eating for a long time because your immune system goes on high alert and is kind of touchy. So you can get sick. When I was in med school, I had like five or six sinus infections every winter. Like it was just one after the other. Now, I'm working in a hospital but I'm also washing my hands like crazy because I'm slightly OCD, wearing gloves all the time, you know, so I'm trying to keep myself sterile. I was just getting sick. I was worn down all the time. So we can also see a ton of gastrointestinal changes. So when people start getting sad and sluggish, they clog up. When they're anxious, they tend to get a little more loose. And when they're kind of having both, that's when you get irritable bowel syndrome, where you have this combination and you get this lots of gas and bloating and stomach pains and digestive issues. We have serotonin receptors. We think of serotonin as a brain neurotransmitter. We have all these medications for depression and anxiety that hit the serotonin receptor. But our whole gut, the whole digestive tract is aligned with serotonin receptors. So we've been talking for a long time, for years in medicine about this brain-gut connection. And it's just in the past several years, we've been starting to get a lot more research on that, doing stool studies and looking at the differences between a healthy population versus people with depression, people with schizophrenia people with obesity, they have different bugs living in their gut. And is this a chicken or the egg, right? And can we treat this? You know, I wonder if in a number of years, I'll be treating major depressive disorder or schizophrenia with a certain strain of probiotics. Who knows? One could only wish, right? Well, when you started your list on disrupted sleep, waking up early and I'm able to go back to sleep, muscle tension, I thought, I feel like you're describing all the things I look at in the gut health world because I spent mm-hmm. all day talking about these same symptoms. And so I think there's overlap and we know that there's the gut brain connection. So another day, come back and we'll do this same thing from the gut brain connection lens. <laughs> but sure. because it's very fun to talk brain stuff. But before we kind of finish up for today, I want to talk about, you know, you and your partner spent a long time identifying the hand model. And so I don't want to, I want to get no, a little no, bit no. of <laughs> I know the, <laughs> the five, five steps. Step. <laughs> the five-step plan. And so I do want to walk through it. The five-step plan. I do want to walk through it a little bit so we understand the big picture view. And if you want to use your own experience walking through it, I'd love, you know, sometimes a story to help it through it. And you yeah. started with kind of assessment as the thumb. I wrote down assessment. The, you may have worried. Get a grip. Word. Get a grip. Get a grip. Yeah. We also researched all the fingers, by the way. There is some weird stuff online. Like we were looking up, like if you had to chop off a finger, like which one should you pick? 
like there's literally like a lot of stuff on the hands online. We were reading and my co-author is very philosophical. So he was looking at what's been written on the hand by philosophers over centuries and thousands of years. He gets very cerebral and we're looking at what does it actually do. Our story, so the first half of the book is the five steps. And we walk through with kind of a patient we call Nina and how she uses the steps in her problem. The second half of the book is almost like I love biographies. And it's almost like a collection of many biographies of stories of how people have used the steps in their crises. And so we have a section on chronic illness, we have a section on trauma, we have a section on existential crisis. And we get into stuff like how to use the steps when there's been a suicide of someone that you love for mass shooting, you know, spiritual crisis, all of these things. And then the editors, because COVID hit after we wrote the book, while we were in the editing process, asked us to write our COVID stories. So at the very end of the book, we have our COVID diaries, how each of us at that time, it was pretty early in the pandemic, were using the five steps ourselves during that time. So there are a ton of stories in there. And while the steps are complicated, I'll give you the basic overview. The first step, like we said, is to get a grip. It's really understanding the problem, the context, everything we talked about. The second one is the pointer finger, and it's pinpoint what you can control. And it's looking at, so the first thing the brain does is it thinks of all the things you can't do, right? Because our brain is wired to focus on danger. So if you're walking and you see a bear, you're not going to notice the trees around you, the flowers around you, you're only noticing the bear. So in crisis, our brains focus us on the problem. And so we let people write out all the things you can't control. Then we look at, we teach people how to brainstorm all the things you can control. And then we look at what can we do about the things we can't control. So we are training the brain to be able to look beyond the alarm and we're challenging the sense of helplessness that tends to accompany a big crisis like this. So those are some of the basics of step two. Step three is the middle finger. I won't flip you off now, but that's a finger of action, right? You know, and this is where you give your cancer the middle finger. Your crisis gets the middle finger. You tell it to F off. And we talk about motivational techniques to take the ideas that you come up with in step two and decide which ones you're going to implement and how to push into motion and do that. Step two, by the way, is not creating a huge to-do list. It's giving yourself options. And then in step three, we decide what to do. Once we get into that and we start taking those actions in step four, which is the ring finger, is called pullback. And it's a reflective stage. We talk about how in crisis, those of us who are extroverts and larger than life and are people of action are sometimes going to have to just be soft and thoughtful. And those of us who go through life as more introverted, soft people are sometimes just going to have to be big and loud and scary. We need to have that blend and that's there in the five steps. So it's this part of pulling back and we walk people through this kind of self-reflective time in preparation for the final, which is the pinky. And it's hold on and let go because that's what the pinky does. And it's actually half the strength of the hand, the pinky and the thumb work together. So it's looking at as you finish going through this crisis. What are you going to hold on to that you've thought about in step four in your reflection? And what are you going to let go of? So for instance, in step four, I'm looking at what I value and what's important to me. Integrity, my sense of humor, whatever it is. And so I'm going to choose in step five to hold on to my humor, to let go of grudges, or to let go of an unhealthy friendship, or to let go of my concerns over what someone who doesn't know me is going to say about me because of this crisis. So that varies for each person. But it's this idea of kind of resetting your emotional thought life, really. It's looking up from snorkeling. It's getting to the place where you want to be 
so you can go back snorkeling in a better place. I love it. It was great to walk through all of those. So getting a grip, pinpointing what you can't control. And there's a lot of steps under number two. And that's kind of where some of that action really happens as well. Because I think often this is where we go on autopilot in life. We're not paying attention to the things that are creating problems for us. So this is where you really identify it. Mm -hmm. Think about letting go of what you can't control and what brainstorming what you can control. So basically, I like how you're saying you're helping the brain recalibrate what it thinks. You know, yeah. uh, and I wrote down, you see what you're looking for. And I heard a pretty good quote like, if you're looking for a red car, you'll see a red car. If you're looking for this, you'll see this. If you're looking for negativity, you will see negativity, right? If you're looking for positivity, you will see positivity. So I think so many good, like little nugget reminders, but that's what that reminded me of. Lovely. Uh, I love it. And it's, it's what you put your eyes on. And I've been writing about this a lot. And I tell people who are suffering to get something like when I did my word of the year, the first time I ever did it was hope because I had lost hope in a certain situation in my life. And I found that it happened to be, you know, October. So Christmas decorations are out. And I found an ornament that just was beautiful. It says hope with a little red satin ribbon. And I thought, how would my life change if I put this in front of my eyes every day? Yes. And so I tell people to do that, to put the thing in front of you and see what happens. Yes. If you do not put things in front of you, they're out of sight, out of mind. And I have yeah. gotten some, and I will say this a lot in interviews. So I'm kind of a broken record. I'll say, you can have whatever opinion you want about goals. That's not about this. It's like, we don't do well with goals because we're not really putting them in front of us, right? We're saying, mm-hmm. I abstractly want to do this. But if it's not out in front of you, it's just forgotten, right? And so the most important mm-hmm. things I'm trying to work on, and I think, don't we always recalibrate? So I recently went through a pretty hefty office clean out you know, over the holidays because it was starting to not be good. And uh, I got rid of a lot of things. And I I was like Googling, you talking about Googling things that you're handed. I'm like Googling how to organize my desk so it doesn't have piles of things that are unaddressed. And I ended up with like, here are these three project folders that go right here. Anyway, the point is putting it in front of you, right? If it's not in front of you, you can't take action on it, right? And you cannot take action on too many things at once. Like you said, we're not giving you a big to-do list, like you said, in, in step two. It's just mm-hmm. kind of picking on... You're always trying to assess like what are the most painful parts that are creating the most friction in life so that we yeah. can move forward. I you think. have to teach your brain that you have options because in crisis, all you see is the bear. You don't see the options. It's fight or flight and that's it. So you train your brain to see all the options. You don't have to follow all the options. You get to pick which ones, but it's helpful for your brain. So the next time you hit a crisis, it becomes easier to turn down the alarm to see that you have options. I mean, literally, this could be a good training for wilderness survival. That's what you're saying, Dr. Love, right? <laughs> it's possible, right? We're training ourselves to like be more agile for our brain to be more agile and to think beyond freezing. If you've ever caught yourself freezing in a certain situation, this is helping you move beyond that almost, right? right. And these are little actions. Anyway, it's super fun to talk about. I'm enjoying it quite a bit. Lastly, it was... So we were talking about pinpointing, then action, implementation and action. It's a huge piece. Like you can identify all day long, but if you can't take action on something that doesn't work, stepping back and assessing, putting your head up and looking at the where you're at on shore or in the ocean there, and then holding on and letting go, like making that conscious effort to let go of those things that don't make a difference. So, so fun. I'm actually kind of curious how you and your colleague ended up. Does he live in the US now? Does he live in? No. So his mom lives in California part time prior to COVID. They, you know, living part time now. She's stuck here and he's stuck there, but he's out visiting his mom. And I met him at a coffee shop and we started talking and crazy. he's just an interesting colleague. Yeah. So we decided to do this project together. Oh my gosh. Seriously. There you have it. <laughs> that is that is serendipitous. I love it. Okay. So the book is called When Crisis Strikes. We're going to come back and yep. do a second edition, but talk to us about where people can find this and where people can find you online. Barnes and Noble, Target, anywhere books are sold. It's on Amazon. So it's really pretty accessible. Right now, we have an author website that is our both of our last names. So I'll hold it up again. It's lovehovic.com, L-O-V-E-H-O-V-I-K.com. And it has links to the podcast we do. So we'll put up a link for the articles we've written and information about the books. I was just looking at the Barnes and Noble website yesterday and they have like a preview. Like you can read the first couple pages. It's on Audible's 
for people who want to listen. And there's eBooks and everything like that. You You're can already see, on Audible. Um, Look at you. Yeah, I'm on Audible. And pretty soon we're going to be in Russia and Poland. Awesome. Which I love is interesting. It. What's next yeah. for you? Now the book is out. It came out in January. We're now in... It's January right now. It just came out. It just came out. Yeah. So, um, well, we're getting this launched. I'm a doctor during a pandemic. So I'm pretty busy and in need of a long vacation like everyone else. You're going to celebrate. Um, <laughs> At, Celebrate the launch. Yeah. I, I just need a lot of like naps. I'm an introvert. And so doing things like podcasts and all, I'm like it's, it just exhausts me. So the last couple of weeks, I've just been sitting in front of like the fireplace. Now it's like 80 some degrees today. So I'm just maybe I'll light a <laughs> candle tonight. But hopefully I want to get starting to think about book two. It's in the back of my mind already. So I have to see if I have the stamina for this because it was really to get book one done take my full-time practice, shove it into four days a week, and then write for three days a week. So oh we didn't gosh. use ghostwriters. No oh, no. And the, no. Other, the other thing we wanted is because everyone said, okay, if you're going to co-author a book, it has to be cohesive. And we were like, no, we each have distinct personalities and distinct voices. And so we finally kind of got them to allow us to each write different sections. So our names on the section we wrote so people can get to used to us as authors. So that's really kind of fun to see our different personalities. I hope I have the energy to do another one. You just take that's a great restorative break and then you will have yeah. creative energy back. So you're at lovehovic.com. The book is When Crisis Strikes. Thank you so much for coming yes. on today. It's a fun oh, time. and Instagram too. You can find me on Instagram. Uh, Dr. Dr. Author. Dr. Dr. Author. Dr. Author. Jennifer Love. Yeah, there's so many Jennifer Loves. I had to have the doctor in there and the author because there's a lot of Dr. Jennifer Loves. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on it. I'm on it. All right. We'll find you there then. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's so fun. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stressed Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stressed Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 